We come now to our sermon passage this morning, which is uh, Exodus 12, 40 through 42 in chapter uh, 13, 19. So this is the Israelites leaving Egypt, and one of the last things they do as they're heading out of town is like, oh, let me grab this on the way out the door. Um, kind of puts it crassly, but that's what's going on here. <laughs> they're on their way out of Egypt. They're about to be pointed toward the promised land and where God's taking them next. So with that said, this is Exodus 12, 40-42, and 13, 19, God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And by the way, that's Passover. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath, he had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it we get a picture of who you are and what you're up to, and thus a glimpse of who we are in you. Teach us this morning from your word. Speak now by your Holy Spirit, God. Illumine uh, your word to our hearts that we would see the treasure that is ours in Christ. That we would see him and see him clearly. I pray this in his name. Amen. So I'm a big fan of the movie Lilo and Stitch. Yes, I'm 38. Um, if you've ever seen Lilo and Stitch, it's an offbeat animated comedy Disney movie. It came out in 2002, so I was 18 when it came out. Um, and it's a celebration of a number of things. It's a celebration of Hawaiian culture. It's a celebration of uh, the beauty of unexpected friendships. And there's a saying that permeates this movie, Lilo and Stitch. And if you've ever seen it, they say it a few times throughout the movie. Ohana means family. And family means what? No one gets left behind. Ohana means family. Family means no one gets left behind. If you've ever experienced that, if you've ever experienced that bond with family or friends, where you felt so completely at home that you knew family means no one gets left behind. I don't get left behind. You know how beautiful that is. You know how powerful that is. To know that you're never alone. That you don't get left behind. That in this wild world that people can find each other and see each other, know each other, and love each other. If you've ever experienced it, you know how powerful it can be. And if you've ever thought you've experienced and discovered that it's not what you thought it was. When you've experienced the pain of betrayal, you know how devastating heartbreak can be. To feel like you would never be left, and suddenly you are. I think that that idea of connection, of family, family meaning no one can be left behind, I think that's so powerful in our hearts because we were created for those kind of relationships. Heartbreak, betrayal, those things are not natural. Our hearts war against them because as human beings created in the image of God, we're not made for that. We're not made for hostility. We're not made for war. We are made to connect with people. People very different from us. We are meant to bring our strengths and our weaknesses and find ourselves together. We're made to be carried along with each other. We were made for family. Uh-huh. Family, family, and so left behind. Our passage this morning, it's three verses, but it touches on this idea of family in the greater context of Exodus. Family bound together by something stronger than we can imagine, gathered by God the Father into a people 
into a place where no one gets left behind. So let's talk about that a little bit more, flesh it out, and I'll do it in a couple of sections. And the first one is this, to be in God's family is to be carried by Him. To be in God's family is to be carried by Him. Now when we say family, we think, at least I do, mom, dad, kids, aunts, cousins, uncles, those things, right? We say family, we mean uh, genetic connections or, or the social connections that come and being born into a group, right? And when Scripture says family, it often means that too. From the very beginning, when God makes His promise to Abraham, that through Abraham and his family, He's going to bring blessing into this world of sin, He says this promise is for who? You and your children after you. God reiterates that over and over again through the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament and it doesn't change. The Apostle Paul, after the resurrection of Jesus, is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he gets done telling about this great grace that has come into our world through Jesus. And he says, this promise is for you and for your children. For all those who are far off that the Lord will call to himself. This promise is for you and for your children. And that means family. That means those genetic and social connections. And the Apostle Paul, even, later on, 1 Corinthians, he's writing to people who have come to faith in Jesus, but their families haven't. And he tells them what? Through you and your faith, your family is holy. Your family is set apart. That God normally works through these uh, relationships to call people to himself. So it does mean family in, this, in that sense. But it's not just limited to that when Scripture speaks about family. Particularly when it talks about God's family. Because the thing that makes God's family, God's family, is not a, a, a family tree. It's not an Ancestry.com profile. It's God's grace. That's the characteristic, that's the family trait that defines God's grace. Surrounding and being formed by His grace. Grace received as a gift, given as a gift, not earned, not bought, but received by faith. That's the family characteristic. That's the family trait. Or that's God's side. God the Father. The definition of His family is He has given grace. The definition of His children is they've received it. By faith. Optimism. That things will work out. That person has a very strong faith. Well, you just mean it's like a personal trait. Like they're happy. They're optimistic. They're hopeful when they look at the future. All oh, things will be okay. They kind of cross their fingers and hoping every, everything works out. But when the Christian talks about faith, when we say faith, that's not what we're talking about. Faith is a relational term. It's not a personal characteristic. It's a relational term. What I mean is this. Faith is what it means for us to be in relationship with our God. Faith is what it means for us to open our arms to the God who has shown himself to us in Jesus. I said God's family, it, to be in God's family means to be carried along by him. That's what faith is. And the good news of that is this. The point of your faith is not a strength. In fact, I don't even like talking about someone having strong faith or weak faith because that's not the point. The picture we get, I mean, imagine a baby being carried along by its mother. What's the confidence of that baby? The baby's not even aware of what's going on, actually. But the strength of the baby's arms and his grasp on his mom's arms or her hair, that's not the point. That's not the point. The baby's strength isn't a factor. 
He's simply being carried and he's held. That picture is what's true of us as well. When we speak about faith, when we say our faith, it means for us to be carried along by by our God who has shown himself to be strong. The point is not I have a strong faith, meaning I have a strong grasp on God. The point is that he has shown his arm in strength and power and he holds us. He holds us. So faith is a relational term. To be in his family is to be carried by him and his promises. So the point of our faith is not its supposed strength. It's the object of our faith. It's the person we've put our faith in. Not our supposed strength. Because our arms grow weak, but his never do. So faith in God's strength, not our own. Being God's family is to be carried by Him. And I think we can see an incredible example of that in this passage. Notice it speaks about Moses taking Joseph's bones as the Israelites are leaving Egypt. Now that seems incredibly strange to me. Like, oh, let me go get my bones as I'm heading out of town. Let me go. I got the bones in the back. Let me go grab them and we'll carry them with us. But 430 years, 430 years before the Israelites were freed from slavery, Joseph... The great-grandson of Abraham, he made his children, as he was on his deathbed, promise that one day, when God was faithful to his promise and took them from Egypt out of slavery into the promised land that God had for them, that when they left, they would take his remains with them. Now think about it. 430 years. You know what was 430 years ago? 1592. 1592 to today. That's a remarkable amount of time. Even today when we have Ancestry.com and DNA profiles, we know what may be the names of our great-grandparents. And that's 60, 70, 80 years ago. This is 430 years. And why did Joseph do that? Why did Joseph do that? Was it because he had a strong faith? Now, he did that because God had promised to his grandfather, his great-grandfather, Abraham, that through his family, God was going to destroy the power of sin. And the generations after Abraham, they were carried along by this promise. This promise was like a torch in the middle of his family that they carried through the generations. And in fits and starts, they learned what it meant to entrust themselves to God who made the promise. And that's what Joseph did on his deathbed. And he could do that. And he could say, one day, in fact, it has his exact words there. God will surely come to your aid. God will surely come to your aid. He will do it. And when he does, you must carry my bones with you from this place. The point here is not, look at Joseph and his strong faith. Joseph had seen in his lifetime the evidences of God's faithfulness. He had been in impossible situations and seen God deliver him. He had been in prison. He had been sold into slavery. He had been falsely accused of different things. And he had watched God preserve him. In fact, to the point that he says earlier in his story, what my brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, for the salvation of men. Joseph had seen God act in his lifetime in this way. And so when he's on his deathbed, the very epitome of weakness. It's not a time of strength for Joseph. He's dying. And that confidence that he might have, that so-called strong faith, it's going to, you know, in a sense, die with him. 
So that's not the point. The point is that in the moment of his weakness, he entrusted himself to the strength of God, the promise-making and the promise-keeping God. To be in God's family is to be carried along by him, to receive his grace by faith. But when we speak of faith, we aren't just talking about an individual or a private thing, which brings me to my next section, not just God and me. Or in a different way, God's family is not an only child household. God's family is not an only child household. Now, I'm an only child. My son's an only child. We are very special people in this world. Um, but God's family is not an only child household. Now, faith, yes, our faith is a deeply personal thing. Remember, it's a relational term. It describes our relationship with this God that carries us along. So it's profoundly personal. But it is not individual. And it is not private. It is not individual. It's not. To be in relationship with our God is to be brought into a community. To find God as our Father means we suddenly find ourselves in this family full of siblings. Brothers and sisters. Many other siblings. There's a reason why Scripture describes the church as a family. Calls it the household of faith. And it continues that even in the New Testament when the, when the church has become majority Gentile. It's no longer limited to uh, mostly just one ethnic group. It's suddenly spread to all kinds of people. And it still talks about it as a household of faith. As a family. And the reason why... It's because there can be a profound beauty in that. I spoke earlier, we were made for connection. We were made for the family means no one gets left behind. The early Christians suddenly discovered that. Imagine you're in the, the, the early, early, early church. To place your faith in Jesus might mean you lose all your relational contacts. It might mean you get ostracized and blackballed by your genetic family. It might mean you lose your job in lots of places. And there in the church, those people who felt lost, who felt abandoned, they could find a bond of family. Maybe that they had never experienced in a positive way, but they found it surely. One of the early church fathers, a man named John Cassian, who lived in the 4th century, <clears throat> he was speaking one time to some people, and it's, it's written down too, but he, he described it this way. To a group of people that had mostly lost their connections to their families, through their faith in Christ. He said, you've each left one father and one mother and one home. Yet you have gained, without any effort, countless fathers and mothers and siblings. Countless homes. He, he speaks about, you can go to any city in the world and you have a home. Any city in the world and you have a bedroom. He describes it. And the idea that they've been brought into something that expands beyond just the limited social connections of a mother, father, siblings. You've been brought into a household of faith. You've been connected by God the Father to all of these siblings. Not just in a way that warms your heart, but in a real tangible way. At least ideally, the Christian should be able to go to any town in the entire world. And if there's a church there, they have a home. They have a family. One of the most beautiful things about this, I think is we suddenly find ourselves in a family full of people with siblings that are very, very different from us. Very different from us. Profoundly different than us in so many ways. And we live in a world that tears us, tells us 
Um, to be fearful of the different. Be fearful of people who are different than you. We tell ourselves to do that. We're one week removed from the shooting in Buffalo. And I know you guys saw it on the news. But the young man who did that, he was convinced that people that are very different than him culturally were a threat. And that their growth and their thriving was an attack on him. So he needed to take action to stop their growth. And so he went to a predominantly black neighborhood and shot up a grocery store. He was told in his heart, the sins of his heart lying to him. He was told by the stuff he was taking in um, that the thriving of people different than him was a profound threat. But that's not true in the kingdom of God. It's not true. Right now we are part of the kingdom of God and we're gathered here and we're all kind of vaguely similar backgrounds, right? We're here in Dunn, North Carolina and Eastern North Carolina. But we are connected by the Spirit of God, brought into this family with God the Father, with people who are profoundly different from us in different cultures that are worshiping with different songs, not the same scriptures, but in different languages. And we're all surrounding this grace. We've been brought into this community of people who are profoundly different than us with this bond that is stronger than national identity or citizenship. It's stronger than political affiliation. We're brought into a family with people who are profoundly different from us. And this new community created by God is a place where no one is left behind, where no one's lost or overlooked. There's no favorite child. There's no favorite child in the kingdom of God who gets everything right. There are no superstars that are more adored. We found a place where we're brought together with our different strengths and our different weaknesses, and we are united together in Him. It transcends culture. But it doesn't just transcend culture. We see in this passage it transcends time and distance. As odd as that may sound, I know it sounds odd. But Joseph is imploring his descendants to carry him with them when they receive God's promised land 430 years in the future. To the point that when they're on their way out, Moses says, no, we've got, we're connected by faith to this man. He goes with us. And it's like a symbolic action to show he, his remains do not stay here. He's an inheritor of the promise too. We don't walk into this promise without Him coming with us. And that connection has transcended those generations and that time. And we're reminded that over and over again. When God shows Himself to Moses initially in Exodus 3, He identifies Himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's even further back than Joseph. But there's a connection. There's a binding there that has even transcended distance. And what is that bond? What is it that holds all these generations and all their diversity together? It's not good intentions. It's not our memory and our ability to recall names and to carry it out. It's God's faithfulness. And that's my next section. We are bound by God's faithfulness. In God's family, His faithfulness is the glue. That's the core. And that's important to realize for a couple of reasons. And the biggest one is this. Guys, your connection to God's family is not mediated by a pastor. It's not mediated by me. I'm not your priest. I don't have a closer connection to God the Father than you do. I just have a different calling. It's not mediated through me. It's not mediated through your parents. So if you've got lousy parents and they beat you over the head with religion, 
Your connection with God is His faithfulness. Not them. It's not mediated through anyone else. It's His faithfulness, period. Your faith isn't in me. It's not in our denomination. It's not in any institution. It's not in your genetic family or your mentors that may fail you along the way. Your confidence is Him. The bond that holds you into His family is that He is your Father who sent Jesus for you to win you to Himself. I didn't do that. I can't do that. None of your mentors have ever done that because they can't. But Jesus did. And so the thing that unites you to God's family, your place is secure because He is faithful. God has worked in Jesus to free you from the penalty of sin and so to forgive you for every wrong thing you've ever done and to free you from the power of sin so that sin is no longer your master controlling you. And it's God who is still at work to make all things new, who will bring in new heavens and new earth where all that is wrong will be made right. It's God and His grace. It's not me, it's not your parents, it's not your mentors. Now, yes, the church has an important role to play. And there are many people probably going through your mind right now who have been instrumental in your life in coming to know Jesus better. People that God has worked through to show His grace to you. And there are no unimportant people in God's family. There are no black sheep. We're all cleansed by Him in the same way. There's no second class. There's no one that God had to go down further to reach. And all of that means this, that the failures of other in this, others in this family, and the sins against you, they don't determine your place in the heart of the Father. That's what I'm getting at. The thing that bounds us to, binds us together, first and foremost, is His faithfulness. Yes, in this passage it was Moses who physically carried the bones of Joseph for Egypt. But I want you to imagine a hypothetical. What if Moses forgot? What if everybody there, all the Israelites in their rush to get out and their happiness to leave the slavery behind forgot? Would Joseph have been lost to God? No. Not at all. Not at all. Had they failed to remember, Joseph would not have been lost. The carrying the bones out here is a symbolic action to show that Joseph was not left behind, but no one is left behind. As God carries on His redemptive purpose, He doesn't move on to a new group of people and leave the others behind. Nothing entrusted to God is lost. That's the point here. So hear me clearly. If I'm, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but it's worth saying. If you've been failed by people in the church, if you've been failed by pastors, if you've been failed by other Christians in big ways or small ways, know that your hope, know that you are kept, and your spot in God's family, with Him as your Father, and you as His delighted in daughter or son, it's held by His faithfulness. No one else can put an eviction notice on your door. Those who have done you wrong will have to answer. They will. Either by repenting and turning to God to find forgiveness and grace, or by justice and judgment. But God will not fail to do right. He won't. He won't drop the ball. Your place in His household is secured by Him, not by anyone else, not by you even. And that brings me to my last section. God's family always has an open seat at the table. Always has an open seat at the table. As the Israelites were leaving Egypt, 
We read about it not in the passage in the verses we read, but immediately before it, as they're leaving, a group of people not connected to them through family ties went with them. There's actually a multitude of people that went with the Israelites as they are leaving slavery and going to the promised land. And what happened to this group of people? They were brought into the family of God. So when the Israelites received the promised land, they received land along with them. Even though they had no claim, they had no heritage to say, you know, I should be in this tribe and I should get this allotment of land. No, they went with them because they had seen God work. And they said, I am trusting in that God. And they were received into his family. God's family, from the very beginning, is one meant for expansion. Or to put it in a different way, the family table always had an open seat. Because there were always more lost sons and daughters to come home. And this is true throughout the ages. God's plan was never just to bring blessings to people that, they could, that could show that they were descended from Abraham. From the very beginning, God focused on Abraham's family as a way into this broken world to expand out. Until God's plan reached its culmination, which we see in the book of Revelation. And I want you to imagine this. It's a bit of an aside, but the book of Revelation, John is an old man. He'd been following Jesus since he was a teenager. He had seen God work. But the, the circumstances of him writing the book of Revelation, he's in exile. He's been arrested and he's been removed from his community of faith and he is alone on an island. He's alone on the island. So he's got to think, this family promise, I don't... This literally does not connect with me at all right now. So this man in his loneliness, this is what he sees. A vision of a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all praising Jesus together, washed by Jesus, and quote, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them, this group that he sees with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb. At the center of the throne, Jesus will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the vision he sees in the midst of his loneliness. God pulls the curtain back in a sense to show him the end. And what does he see? This great multitude of people no one can count from this diversity of cultures that are brought together. The only way to get there, to the end, to this great multitude, the only way this happens is that our faithful God brings more and more of his lost children home to this open seat at the table. And that's what God is doing right now. It's what God is doing right now. We live in a broken world. And while we experience so much of the redemption of Jesus in the here and now, the forgiveness of sins, the confirmation to our hearts that we are His, we experience that all now. There's still so much of His redemption that is yet to be applied to us. There's still so much left to heal. But one of the reasons that God is still working, but one of the reasons He hasn't brought the culmination of this redemption yet is because he is working through his family, through us, to bring his lost children home. He's bringing his lost children home. And for that reason we pray, and we pray with expectation. We pray with confidence. 
I know you've got family members in your mind right now, friends in your mind right now, that do not know the grace of Jesus. You're thinking about them. Your faces are in your mind. Pray with confidence and expectation. Because God's at work to bring His children home. He did it for you. He did it for me. Let's pray with confidence. I spoke earlier. The New Testament speaks of unbelieving family of believers as holy. Set apart by God. It means that God ordinarily works through His people to bring others to Himself and to His grace. I've seen that in my own life. As a child, I prayed for my dad constantly. My mom prayed for my dad constantly. When I was 17 years old, we watched my dad who had been in rebellion, resistance to God, find the grace of Jesus. I've seen it happen. The open seat at the table that was reserved for him for him is no longer open because it's been filled. And that's what God does. He works in that way. So don't lose heart. Because God loses nothing we entrust to Him. And as we'll sing in a minute, all will be well. We are His family. And His family means no one gets left behind. It means us. In closing, the story doesn't end here. Now, we could read this and it'd be very heartwarming. Like, oh, they took his bones with Well, that's strange. But they took his bones with him. And, well, isn't that great? They didn't. We could come away with that and that'd be the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story here. Because the story keeps going. If the story stopped with them taking Joseph's bones to the promised land, that's a story that still ends in death. His bones are just in a different place. There's a beauty in that that still ends in death. The good news of the gospel this morning, friends, the good news of Jesus isn't someone like Joseph who had faith, of course, but was flawed. Because Joseph could do nothing for us. The good news is that in Jesus, the one to whom Joseph pointed to, in Jesus, we find someone whose bones were not left in the tomb. But who was raised victorious from the grave and now always lives as our interceders. The New Testament speaks about him as our mediator. And we stand in him. And he always lives. And he is our guarantee. And when we are in doubt, and when we are stuck in darkness, we look at Jesus and we say, look what God did for Jesus. He was vindicated and raised from the dead. We are counted in him. That's what he's going to do for me. In fact, we are invited to call Jesus our older brother. Because we've been adopted into the family where he is the only begotten son. We're adopted alongside to receive as our inheritance. All that is his by right, we receive by grace. And that's our confidence. And through him we have forgiveness. And through him we're adopted into God's family. And we find our home. Jesus, the one who carries us. Jesus, the one who gathers us. The faithful one that binds us together. And is even now our good shepherd. Seeking and saving all of his lost sheep.